0: Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And this is a special one because we're on part three, the final part of our three part series on physician suicide. Part one, we talked about the personal, first person experience of recognizing that you're suicidal and surviving it. Part two, we talked about what it's like to be a colleague and how do you reach out to a colleague who might be suicidal. And this part number three, we're going to talk about. If you're a coach, if you're coaching physicians, how do you recognize a suicidal client and what do you do in response to that recognition? And I have my all-star crew with me again, Dr. Pam Pappas, Dr. Penelope Shu, both physicians, both ICF certified executive coaches, and both members of the coaching team here at thehappymd.com. And what we thought that we would do, we were just talking about it before we started the recording. What we thought we would do is a a modified case study. So if you're a coach, this is really appropriate for you to listen along and, and see what we do. But also for anybody who's going to do any sort of reach out to anybody who is in distress, you may get into the same kind of conversation that we're going to be in here today. So the tools will work for anybody who finds themselves in a conversation. And I'm just going to start. When the back the hairs on the back of your neck go up because of what somebody just told you, right? Are you with me? So to begin today, I think, Penny, you're going to start us, right? Dr. Shu's going to start us okay yeah. cool let's let's do this. Everybody say hi Because <laughs> ideally, you've been listening to part one and part two. We're going to put these into a to a lesson plan here so that people can really get a viewpoint on the scourge of physician suicide, what it looks like in real life, a different viewpoint. And we're going layer three here. What do you do in a conversation, especially if you're a coach? Penny, kick us off.
1: Okay. I have a client who reached out to the happy MD, you know, to have a discovery call to get support because they had had a colleague commit suicide um, in the last month or two.
0: And just to be clear, if I can interrupt yeah, in our work together, When we ask people, and we don't always ask this, but when we ask people, do you know anybody who's committed suicide? It's shockingly frequent that doctors will say yes. I think it's something like 50% of doctors know somebody who committed suicide either in training or in practice. Excuse me, go ahead.
1: (laughs) So this client, again, had gone through the trauma of it and had not felt particularly supported by their institution and knew that they you know, we're we're obviously struggling with it—not just sort of the grief of it, but how do I make sure I don't go down that path? You know, how did I miss this? You know, I was a bad coworker, like all of those types of things. And so they reached out to us at the Happy MD for some support, and we started working together, doing what we what I usually do, which is kind of set them up initially with just some some practical stress management, squeegee breath, like how do you just get through your day and. And then slowly unpacking the grief and things like that. And all of the while, their workload and obviously the whole department's workload had gone up because they had lost a provider very suddenly and they had not been able to recruit to replace. So the work burdens just kept going up and this client was in a leadership position and it was just sort of expected that they would take the extra call and, you know, do the extra conference and do the extra lecture and
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to say management made a choice not to bring in an urgent locum tenants. So I just want to, I want to point this out. A piece of the pressure that these people uh, were under could have been alleviated by management's urgent responsible actions. So I'm starting to get pissed off, but that's not unusual.
1: (laughs) So, right. And, You know, in in typical Lone Ranger superhero mode, this client was like, okay, you know, I'm the leader, I I should be able to keep going, I will do this, I will set the model for everybody. And eventually, it just got to be too much for them, where they started having passive suicidal thoughts themselves about, you know, I can't do this anymore, I don't want to be here anymore, this isn't worth it, you know, I'm not contributing to my family, I'm not contributing, I'm not helping my team you know, patient care is failing, like I'm failing here on every count. What am I even doing here? And they had the wherewithal to recognize that they were having those thoughts. And they actually, you know, walked themselves into a psychiatric hospital for an inpatient stay. Um, And they wound up there, you know, for quite some time. and, and, And then they came out of that. And they were like, can we pick back up, you know, and start coaching again? And I, and I have to admit, I was like, I don't know, can we? Like, I don't know what the rules are. Um, and that's when I came and, and and got some advice from all of you. And essentially, for me as the coach, because I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist, I really, I really, I almost like mandated it, right? That they had to be working with a therapist and a psychiatrist and have regular appointments, like kind of set up already. I just didn't want to be the only person supporting this person, not just like medical liability wise, but just like I felt at the moment that it was beyond what I had been trained to do as a coach. Um, And so that leads to the question of like, right, what is the role of a coach in the face of that?
0: (laughs) Pace coordinator, I would say, Uh, because I've done the same thing. If I have, if I have a suspicion that somebody's depressed, If I have a suspicion that someone is suicidal I'll help them line up a team that includes a primary care provider and some sort of mental health provider Uh, and then the primary care provider I occasionally will get permission and make a phone call to and that person is usually what the person who's running authorizations for disability leave and other things like that so sometimes it gets into almost like a case manager piece now We do have a psychiatrist on the line, though, here. Uh, So, (laughs) Dr. Pappas, (laughs) I want to chime in here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you mentioned, Penny, that your client walked themselves into an inpatient unit, my heart opened up because that is somebody that was willing to take charge of their own life force and get the help that they needed. So, Kudos to them. And oftentimes we have the opposite response, like, oh, no, I'm not going to let anybody know. If I go to the psychiatrist, even as an outpatient, I'm going to be labeled and painted forever. So your client showed great courage in doing that. The second thing is I totally also identify with how how lonely it can feel as the coach oh i'm I, i'm the only one that this person is confiding in and i don't feel enough in terms of my training experience wherewithal at the time to be that lonely only but you shouldn't have to be because this idea of creating a team is huge when when i've had people come on the discovery calls with the happy ND or in my private coach practice. I, that's often step one. If they, if they show that, you know, I'm coming after, you know, six traumas and something horrible just now happened in my practice and uh, I'm getting ready to be fired or there's some malpractice suit and plus they have early onset pain, Like, not that we don't all, but it's highlighted for them is is what I'm saying. And that having a consultation with a psychiatrist is often my first encouragement to them. And if there are old-timey psychiatrists like me, I'm, I'm kind of a dinosaur, but ones that do the combination of medicines as they are needed and actual psychotherapy, when it, when it is needed, but more and more, those roles are separate. So you have a therapist, you have a primary care doctor maybe, and then you have a psychiatrist, hopefully, who has some sentience about physician mental well-being and has some willingness to hear the, the kinds of distress that, that people have. What I was noticing is that a lot of physicians for varying reasons, push away from themselves these painful situations. Uh, In in more psychiatric terms, that would be countertransference, where you take your responses that are germane to you, but then you put it onto something in the present and get confused between what's what there. But the idea is that a lot of physicians like, like us, you know, can feel an aversion, like get this, this complicated situation away from me. And another is there, but for the grace of God, go I, and and it's, it's, it's very anxiety provoking. And so if you happen to be a coach, that's not also a psychiatrist, then you might feel like, God, I don't have what it takes. But what I'm saying is, I'm stepping up as a psychiatrist, as and as a coach, and I'm wanting that person to get a consultation, at least, and then move forward with the kinds of treatment and therapy that they might need. And I've had at least four people come back to me that you know end up with, um, and they're my client, coaching clients as well as their need, their need to be in psychiatric treatment. They said, you know what, Pam, I would not have done that had you not really been firm about it. So it's not a weakness bringing a team. That's what I'm trying to say. We think there's something wrong with us if we we have to do that.
0: Think about the boundaries in your coaching relationship. So this is going to be true for anybody who's a coach, but also has other qualifications. We're physicians and coaches in a coaching relationship with other physicians. So what's ending up happening is we have a boundary. I'm a coach in this situation. I'm not your doctor. Look, Listen to, to Pam. She's a coach in this situation, not their psychiatrist. So ideally, all you coaches, you've got a contract that says, I am not going to offer you any medical, legal, or financial advice. If I think you need those things, I will refer you out. So notice Pam is saying, she knows she's a psychiatrist, but she's saying, you need to go see a psychiatrist. It's not me. I'm your coach. Are you with me? So I think that one of the big decisions when you get into a complicated case like this, and let's just mention uh, suicide, depression, these are complications of burnout. Burnout itself is not a mental illness. Are you with me? So you get into a complicated case of somebody's having disability or they have a psychiatrist and a therapist when you meet them, or you get that for them, you turn into a case manager because, Everybody else is dealing with either the past or the present. And as a coach, we're looking out the windshield as to what do you want to happen going forward and how are we going to get you to that reality that you're trying to create for yourself going forward. It's a legitimate role that's separate from medical providers and folks that are signing disability papers and things like that. So let me ask you all this. If I'm in the middle of a discovery session with somebody and they crack a a dark humor joke, About often themselves, and nowadays we do this on Zoom. We used to do it on telephones, right? (laughs) I've been around long enough; there wasn't Zoom, right? You you got to the point where you could feel sort of vibes through the phone. You could hear people's energy change through the phone, and sometimes I'll get to the point where I'll say, "Time out, hang on a second, Chuck. You know, you just said." Shoot yourself in the head. And I I think you meant it to be funny, but, you know, I got the hairs on the back of my neck sticking up. So I got to ask you a couple of questions, right? I'll just go through mine. And, And I'm not a trained suicide prevention hotline person or a psychiatrist, but do you have a gun, Chuck? Where is it? Is it loaded? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? Like, really? Not joking about it, but really doing it? Have you ever tried? Do you live by yourself? Are you drinking drugs, losing weight, losing sleep? Will you promise me that you'll get that gun out of the house tonight? Uh, Will you promise me that you won't try to kill yourself without calling me first? And I don't mean just trying to call me. I mean, reaching me and talking to me first. And let's get you a psychiatrist. That's sort of the line that I pursue. And um, I've never had anybody fight me on it. Usually it's like, there's, they seem to be relieved that I'm going into that amount of depth and concern. And um, so that's been my experience. And I've had to do that over the course of 13 years now, about half a dozen times. What's been your experience of actually stopping a discovery session and doing some screening for a person that you're concerned about?
2: It's interesting. Some people have selected the discovery session with me because I am a psychiatrist. And then we have one other psychiatrist that's in our coach group, but in their mind, they are going to be able to cover two birds with one stone. (laughs) And I'm pretty quick to say, well, you know, uh, you're calling me as a coach and I do lay out like what I am going to be responsible for and, and what is, what other team members need to be involved. And I've asked all those questions. But, you know, in the back of my mind, it's also gives your spidey sense some tingling because you don't know necessarily what they're going to do after they've had the conversation with you. And that's totally in in their control. So for me, I have to really... Go deep and see our so how how much do I trust the what kind of connection or alliance that we've been able to make so far? do I believe what they're telling me? Oh yeah, I'm gonna take the gun and I'm gonna have my neighbor hold on to it okay what what I've had happen is people kind of argue with me about well, I don't really need to um take these things seriously, but they just made that joke that you were. Talking about and say you know I I just want to be really sure about how you're how how safe you're feeling right now I mean you you told me a bunch of stuff that's been going on it sounds painful as hell and I I have never had them not get honest with me and I've also never had any of the ones that that I have had to go go there with them like the kinds of questions you're talking about stop poaching. They may, take, they may need to take a, a hiatus from it, but they come back. And what I also am trying to communicate with them is that I have worked with plenty of people that needed to be in treatment for depression, anxiety, uh, substance abuse, whatever. And they're also working in coaching. So it doesn't mean, oh, God, get get away from me because you had these these problems. What makes sense in terms of their holistic life? And to do in in what order, and and with whom?
1: Yeah, I totally agree that I have a lot of clients who have at least a therapist, and some have the therapist and the psychiatrist. Even the ones who are not suicidal, and I think it's a really nice little trifecta to have. You know, um, <laughs> like why not have a team? You know, to to your point, Doctor, uh, you know earlier, Pam, like we should have a team. Why wouldn't you want a team? And I tend to. You know, maybe falsely or whatever. I tend to kind of feel better when I know that there is a team and it's not just me because it is less lonely. And I sort of the the way I kind of in my own mind differentiate it is the deeper work is gonna be done in therapy, you know, and and we can sort of focus on I I almost feel like we're the like you said before, Doug, like we're looking forward, like we're the bastion of, of light, you know, like what can we do? You know, now that we've working we're working through the depression, we're working through the grief, you know, what are some things we can do to take care of yourself? What are some things that we can do to honor, you know, your friend? And I feel like it does give them something to hold their, you know, to kind of hang on to, instead of just sort of being lost in the sadness or the grief, like there's concrete things that we're giving them. I think that's why some people kind of still like to have a coach, even though they're in therapy. I mean, I don't know, I'm just speculating. And for me, I don't know, I guess Maybe I should ask these questions, but I tend to just kind of keep it simple. And, you know, if somebody makes the sort of gallows humor remark, I just usually ask, like, you know, ha- have you tried, you know, are you serious, you know, with that comment? Have you tried before? Are you actively thinking about it right now in this moment on this call? Yeah. <laughs> Am I dialing 911? And, and, and I have... Oh. 988. Oh, right. 988. Nine eight eight. Um and I haven't I actually haven't gone into like, do you have a gun? Are you sleeping okay? I've just kind of kept it broad level. Maybe, maybe, Pam, to your point of like, do I want to go that deep on a discovery call? I need to obviously screen to make sure that they're safe. And I'm clearly gonna make the referral to a psychiatrist or a therapist. But yeah, I mean, I, I just never know how deep to go as the coach.
0: Well, and one of the things I tell people is, you've probably never had a supportive relationship with a colleague, which is almost certainly true for doctors. We have competitive relationship with colleagues. We have things we keep from our colleagues because we don't ever want to show a sign of weakness or anything like that. So I think that a conversation where they know you're a doctor and a coach and you're listening, and you're actually listening from a point of trying to understand rather than judging, what's been going on? Well, like you said, my, my friend committed suicide, and it's been hell. And I've found myself, and all of a sudden, they're being seen, honored, and comprehended. I think that that is a revelation for many people. And um, I think that that is some sort of call for a reality check. I need to really tell somebody who would understand exactly how I'm feeling. And I think that you can go as far as you'd like, as long as there's not weirdness going on in the call, as long as you're feeling that channel, you're following that energy line, I think that you can talk about pretty much anything you want, and they'll relax into it. At least I found it to be that way. And sometimes on those calls, you know how it is, you go into the flow, and it's like, there's words coming out of your mouth, but you aren't thinking about it, it's coming from someplace else through you. And um, so I, I let those kind of things go go meaning flow keep going and i think that one of the things that we offer as coaches is a positive vision of the future whereas without our input and the conversations they have with us planning for what it is they want to do this is a major this is a major transition for them if they've run into a wall of suicide there's going to be stuff needs to change when they go back to work if they go back to work how they go back to work when they go back to work So to have a positive vision of the future in a situation where you'd otherwise be wallowing on and feeling shame and guilt and blame and failure and what if they find out and all that kind of stuff, I think that it's vital that there be a coach in the mix. And with most psychiatrists these days being medication folks, you you need to have a psychiatrist and a therapist and a primary care doc and you. And I think that's a a team makeup that makes a lot of sense to me and have used it a bunch of different times.
2: In listening to the two of you, what comes to my mind is knowing when to ask the deeper questions, Penny, like what you were saying, and I'm palpating or feeling the, the extent of the connection as, mm-hmm. as I'm listening. And I know that you've had this this sense yourself when you're um, talking with somebody, but some some of the questions might need to get more detailed. If you're feeling in some sense that the person is less reliable and feeling less engaged in their own welfare, <laughs> like making a, a referral to a psychiatrist after the call, that's that's less hands-on than, oh, you're actively, you've got a gun in your hand. or And you need to get more active as the coach. you got this person on the phone or on the Zoom. And you you don't refer them on, but you gotta get a next person that's right there that can help you. Which and that and that get that gets harder. It really does as a coach. But it so the questions is okay. So how actively involved do I need to be as the coach with this individual right now at the end of this call? And sometimes I don't always have an answer for that. I, I don't.
0: And I've what I've done is is had virtual handshake agreements that they're going to take an action step afterwards, and they're going to contact me after they take that action step, or they're going to call their sister and their sister's going to call me or something like that. Yeah. Something like no, I've that.
2: Had, I've, I've had them. Okay. Can you put your spouse on the line? Right. Are they home? Yes, they are. Okay. Can I? Can can they come in and we can have the three of us have a conversation here, right? And then those kinds of plans can be made in a more bedrock fashion, I would say.
0: And the other thing I'll 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 say is that I I'm a very kinesthetic person. So for instance, when I close my eyes and you tell me to imagine something, I don't see anything. I become it. I feel it. I know it's there. I just don't see it. And 20 or 30% of our population are non visual imagers like me. So, what I'll tell you is, I often use my body in coaching sessions. So, I let my, I, I speak about what I'm feeling in my body. Like when you said that, Chuck, I got a pain in my chest. What do you think that was about? Or the hair went up in the back of my neck. What do you think that was about? I'll put it out into the conversation. Did you notice that or was it just me? It's a it's a line of questioning that's a little bit unusual, but it's interesting how that will draw people forward with asking a question based upon something you're feeling in their body. Maybe they're feeling it too. It'll take them deeper. So play with that if you're somebody who gets physical sensations during your coaching sessions.
2: Yeah, I certainly do, and and I'm I'm also remembering at least one uh, gentleman who had had a psychiatric hospitalization, and he asked me, he said, look, are you scared to work with me because I've had this happen? And I said, listen, man, how many times do you think I've worked with physicians that have been through suicide feelings or attempts? And he goes, well, I hadn't thought about it. And I said, well, hundreds. And he goes, oh, so this, so this is okay with you? I said, well, no, I'm sorry you're in pain, but yes, I can work with you. And so it's it's humanizing and this experience that has been so foreign to them, having to be in an inpatient unit, but had it has a team to to work with uh, on the deep the deep issues. While I was working with him about just the issues that you were describing, to like okay, so what is it that you really want going forward, so that you don't repeat the same pain and suffering and Yuck of your life so that it can open up and feel better to you.
0: Yeah, somebody who has significant suicidal ideation or an attempt, there's a significant transition in whatever piece of their life that was causing this. So I usually split it into pieces, right? So your job, your practice, your career, your life, there's something going on in here that needs to go through a transition. And we help them get moving forward on something like that. Now, one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording too was. You may need to help coach them through their colleagues' reaction to them coming back to work because as physicians, I would say it scares the crap out of us <laughs> when somebody commits suicide, but what if, they, what if they attempted suicide and now here they are back on the ward or the wing or the service with us? Say a little bit more about what your experience has been, Pam.
2: Walking through the door that first day is a real big deal for them. But what I've seen more often, the person may be expecting, you know, to be shamed and humiliated or all of that. But the thing that I find more eerie is silence and people saying nothing. Oh, we haven't seen her for the last six months. Hey, here you are. Here's your... Shiploads of patients to take right. care of. And you're on call for the next three weeks in a row, right. right. making up for the call that we had. In, and nobody <laughs> ever actually speaking of, hey, the reason why you were gone, and we care about you, we missed you, and we're glad to have you back as a human being. That is sometimes missing. It's the basic human welcoming of a colleague yeah. that is returned.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that is that, that, the scary mirror, you know, that that episode may hold up for that the colleagues to say, oh gosh, you know, I always go to lunch with them. Like, you know, how could that happen to him? It could happen to me. You know, I don't want it to rub off on me. But I will say that I've also had clients tell me the other side of the coin, which is they interpreted people asking, oh, how are you? How are you feeling? Are you feeling better? They interpreted that as like, oh, they're trying to get the gossip. They're trying to like, you know, poke around, see if I'm still okay. You know, they're, they're making fun of me by asking if I'm okay. So yeah, I've, I've, I've had the opposite happen where people were reaching out. And then whether it's still the, the shame and the, the guilt that they feel themselves, they, they interpreted those questions as being very invasive and they didn't want to tell anybody anything. So it's. I guess it can run the gamut. Oh, I
2: hear. I hear that end of it too, Penny. I, I think you're right. And for those, for folks in that kind of a situation, I would guess that there are layers of trust that existed before the episode or the hospitalization or leave of absence that need to be adhered to. Like, okay, so I. So there's a closer crowd that know what what was going on and what led up to my hospitalization now those you have a different kind of conversation than the ones that you've never really interacted with and they're calling to anyway hey, what oh, are yeah. totally they might well, be trying to get the gossip
1: yeah
0: it's true well and i think that there's a fundamental difference in how one feels when a colleague offsite, unseen kills themselves and they're not here anymore that's one kind of a wake-up call for those who remain behind. And there's another one for, for instance, your client, Penny, put herself in an inpatient unit for suicidal ID, but now she's back. Tell us a little bit about, did she come back to that same team? Was she able to go back to work in that organization and with those people?
1: Yeah, they tried, but I think to your point, like it is, it is a wake-up call, right? To, to hit that nadir yourself. It it really does make you reevaluate, you know, what you're doing with your life. And for that client, they started to realize that the going back would not be good for their continued, you know, well-being.
0: It doesn't surprise so, any of us, does it?
1: <laughs> so yeah. So now we're sort of figuring out what those next steps are gonna are gonna be and what that's gonna look like. So that's still an ongoing.
0: And just a little leadership outtake here. So she lost a colleague to suicide and they didn't replace that person. And then she went as an inpatient. Did their management team get somebody to cover the service while these two people were out? Probably not. And I just want to say, again, management corner. Wow, the productivity on that wing went way up because they took two salaries out of the expense side of the ledger. So this is a, a little bit of an evil twist on management not covering temporary losses of staffing short staffing is evil when it comes to trying to offer great patient care and to preserve the well-being of the people that are actually seeing patients today so what i would hope if you're a leader listening to this is that somebody commits suicide or somebody goes out on inpatient psychiatry treatment that you would do everything you possibly can to get a locums in there to cover the holes in the schedule as soon as possible and be out there commiserating with the team, letting them know that you understand what's going on, you're doing what you can to make it better. Because some of these crushing crushing emotions and crushing workloads are, are avoidable. A lot of them are, a lot of the time.
2: It's not just about the, psych- the so-called psychiatric illness of the person that was on the leave, but your medical director, CEO types need to really start asking questions. What's going on in this unit? And mm-hmm. what what about the workflow? What about the staffing? What about the collegiality? Is there uh, an environment of trust? And probably not, right? You know, and, and for good reason, for, you know, on the front line versus the admin line. But that is that is a wake up call for the admin team too. But oftentimes they just kind of it goes right over their heads. Yeah, that's, or they that's... blame or they blame it on the person. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. And just one last thing, and then we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit of a bow around this. I had two times in, in the year 2022, twice, when leadership teams came to me to ask about our corporate services, helping build a corporate burnout prevention strategy. And I always start with, why me? Why are you talking to me? And why now? That's what I usually start with. And twice, we had three or four people from the C-suite on the on the zoom frame, like this, the Hollywood Squares. And they looked at each other and they hunned and hot a little bit. And then they finally said, Well, I think it was the third suicide. Three. Twice. Three. So they didn't oh. take action until the third one. I I'm, you know, you may be shocked by that if you've never heard that kind of a story before. Unfortunately, I'm not. Because that's when the the burden of attempting to continue to ignore it becomes too much because everyone's up in arms and the local newspapers are probably starting to write things and all that kind of stuff. So what I'm saying is that a close call is a close call should be a never event. A suicide should be a never event. And one of the reasons that things can get out of control is the lack of rounding and shadowing by leadership teams of the people that they're supervising. And I'll let, again, a little leadership point, because what we're talking about is a context in which this individual decides for whatever reason that suicide's a viable option. What can we do as a leader about the context in which it took place? Shadow and round on people enough that when they see you, they say, well, thank. what are you doing here? To what do we owe this unexpected pleasure? As opposed to the typical reaction that typical leader gets, which is if you show up unannounced, They're going to look at their toes and say, oh, shit, what did I do now? They know they're in trouble. Why do they know that? Because you trained them. Because the only time you show up is when they're in trouble. And that's bad leadership. That's how things get out of hand. And you're surprised by somebody quitting or surprised by somebody throwing something or surprised by somebody who commits suicide or went out on depression or an inpatient admitted themselves walking through the door. So there's a lot of things in an employee physician setting that leadership can do to get early warnings, to create better environments, and to mitigate for the kind of stresses that cause suicide. So,
2: you know, I hope that, it, you know, afterward, we're complete with this tying of, of, of a bow, that we make arrangements to talk about what some people talk about with, with moral injury and moral distress, being put in situations to do a job, but not given the resources to do so, or or being obstructed from doing the job that they know needs to be done for these patients. because I think that that's a real fueler of distress and misery in our
0: colleagues. Absolutely. And let me let's just define a successful resolution here of a situation that a doctor's got themselves into. And Penny, I'm assuming you're still coaching this person. Yep. Mm -hmm. And they're still in the middle of the transition. Mm -hmm. Okay. What I would suggest is that a successful resolution is that, and I'm I'm not going to say that it's this person's working back in the same ward or wing or service or anything like that, because we as coaches don't operate that way. But this person has had a chance to reevaluate what they really want, whether it's seeing patients or something else, and they're on a path to a brighter future and feeling good about what happened. In my experience, too, is a decade from now, this person typically will speak about this as, thank God, I admitted myself, because it's made all the difference in the world.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Because that's a story of successfully resolved burnout, in my experience.
1: The
2: other "Thank God, I would add, besides that she, you know, they went to the inpatient unit, but they decided to do a call with you, Penny, and to work with you because they sense (laughs) that you would stick with them and help them come to some kind of upgrading of their, of their life, whether it's patient care or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I am very honored and um, I'm very humbled, you know, and touched by the fact that they did reach out. They let me know what was happening and that they were going to go in and they let me know as soon as they came out and, you know, so, yes, yeah, so I, I do feel very good about that. So I, I, I hope to do them right.
0: Yep. We're all light lightworkers. Um, one of the things that I believe is also true is that no matter what this person does, when they eventually go back to some sort of vocational activity, will be helping and healing in some fashion. It might not be as an employee inside a healthcare delivery organization, but I'm sure that they will be involved in that. Has anybody got anything they want to do or say or ask to be complete for today? Right on. So thank you very much. Very, very much. Dr. Pam Pappas, Dr. Penelope Hsu, uh, for your first person's per- perspective on part one, uh, for working us through how to, how to be a good ally and a support in part two. And now what it's like to work as a coach with somebody who's suicidal here in part three and, I hope that if you've listened through, dear listener, if you've listened through all three, that you've gotten some good experience and some good tips and some good insight out of this three-part series on physician suicide. And for now, that's it. Dyke Drummond at TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Until we're together again at some point in the very near future, keep breathing and have a great rest of your day.